we've been in, you know, this, this, this state of threat 24-7 for a year and a half. So if we can carve out five minutes a day, five times a day, then we can start rewiring the brain. We can start working with neuroplasticity to create new neural pathways to where we can get out of the threat response and get into the present moment, get into our bodies, get into feeling safe and connected. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're joined by therapist Brian D. Mahan. In 2003, Brian suffered 7 to 10 panic attacks a day following a catastrophic car wreck. And after just three sessions with a somatic experiencing practitioner, he was symptom-free. And within weeks, he began training to become a practitioner himself. He's also studied extensively about healing developmental trauma and shame. He's a speaker, educator, and author with an international private practice. And today, we're going to discuss healing from trauma brought on by the pandemic, as well as what people can do in their relationships to better support each other through this challenging time. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. It's so good to have you on the show. I I do feel like by having you on the show, it feels like I'm sharing this like super secret, wonderful treasure with all of our oh. listeners. Yeah, just to, I'll bring people uh. in. Yeah, so Brian was my first somatic experiencing therapist. I, I spent, you know, like I left a physically abusive relationship in 2017, spent a lot of time in talk therapy and the talk therapy was like, okay. You know, my it was very, very cognitive and it helped me understand a lot logically about what was going on with my PTSD. But when I left talk therapy, I still felt like everything from the neck down didn't get the message. You know, I was still having really, really bad physical symptoms of PTSD. And the reason why I'm sharing this story is normally on this show, when we encourage people to find a therapist or a practitioner, we really encourage people, yeah, make sure you do your due diligence, find someone who's queer friendly, who's polyamory friendly. I was so desperate. I did none of that. I literally, after reading Peter Levine's book, um, In an Unspoken Voice, I was just like, I just need to find someone who does this kind of work. I don't care who it is. It doesn't matter as long as they're close to me and they're available. And I got very, very, very lucky that I ended up with Brian, who was not only a wonderful practitioner, but also very queer-friendly and polyamory-friendly as well. So kids, don't do what I do unless you're very, very lucky like I was. Don't try this at home. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I just have to say, Brian has taught me so much personally about the way that trauma works and about shame and the way those things interact. I also went on to join the Somatic Experiencing Training Program as well, and which has happened for a lot of Brian's clients. You said you're what up to like 16 clients now who've gone on to become oh, 26. Oh my god! Oh my god! 26 wow. clients. That's incredible. Well, you know, a couple of a couple of friends, but 26 clients. Um, you know, and friends have become somatic experience and practitioners over the last, you know, 17 years or so that I've been doing wow. this. Wow. I think it's a great testament 
for the work itself. You know? Sometimes I feel nervous sharing that because I'm like, oh God, are people going to think it's like an MLM? Is Brian earning all the toast- <laughs> like a bunch of toasters <laughs> from no. signing up 26 different people? <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't receive anything from, <laughs> from that except for, you know, just the gratitude and the inspiration and seeing the change in people's lives. I mean, that's how I got into the work, right? I got in it and it was mm. so transformative for me. I was like, I got to learn this, you know? And then as I was learning it, I was like, I got to share this. And so, you know, to have that, to witness that same thing, you know, in so many people over the years is just really tremendous. And I think it speaks highly and specifically about somatic experiencing and the efficacy, you know, mm. I mean, uh, you know, I would say nine out of 10 clients that come to see me come with the story that they've tried everything. They've been, they've tried comprehensive therapies of all different kinds for decades that, you know, they're sick and tired of telling their story over and over that they have, you know, found that talk therapy helpful to a degree, but then that just got to a place like you were just saying, Dedeker, that it just wasn't getting, it just wasn't reaching, it wasn't really resolving what needs to get resolved, you know? And that's why we have to look at trauma through a different lens, Mm. right? Trauma is a physiological condition, not a psychological disorder. And so we have to work with it physiologically, Mm. right? And to work with it psychologically or through talk therapy you know, I hate to say it because of my peers in the, in the field, but, you know, the research that's come out recently as a result of all of the studies that have been done with the veterans, right? The research has come conclusive that talk therapy and psychiatry isn't helping and it might actually even be harming, right? And so when we can shift the focus and we can look at trauma as what it is originally inherently a physiological wounding experience when we can work with it physiologically then things can change right and one of the reasons why we know that trauma is physiological more so than intellectual cognitive or psychological is that we can become traumatized pre-verbal pre-cognitive and pre-conceptual mm-hmm. so if we can become traumatized before we can think and reason mm-hmm. then clearly there's another system at play right cognition and even explicit memory don't even come online until 18 to 24 months, right? And if we can become traumatized before that, then what's at play? Mm-hmm. The system that's online, and that's our lower brain and our autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. right? And so we have to work with that system. And when we do work with that system, then healing and transformation is profound, palpable, and long-lasting. So let's start with some basics. Like, Brian, can you share with us how you define trauma, like how your training and background defines trauma? I know we have a lot of listeners out there who are either vaguely or very specifically familiar with the term. There's a lot of different definitions, a lot of different experiences out there, but how would you characterize it? Right. Well, in very simplistic terms, I think it's simplistic, but it may also be a little academic. But you know, in very simplistic terms, when we face threat of any kind, our bodies, our brain, our lower brain specifically, or, or, you know, our reptilian brain, 
right? Assesses the threat. And in the threat assessment, it, the, the lower brain governs the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is mobilized, right? Brought online to deal with the inherent threat, right? And so there's an activation in the system. And if that activation in the system is able to find its own natural peak, unwind, discharge, and the system can reorganize and return to homeostasis, right? And to, you know, just basic baseline, then we consider that a bit stressful. Hmm. If for any reason that process gets interrupted, we consider that event traumatic. Can, so just to rewind for a moment, when you talk about the autonomous nervous system, that's like breathing, heartbeat, hormones, that kind of stuff, right? Exactly, right. So there's the sympathetic system and the autonomic system, right? So the sympathetic system is the charge, is the arousal, right? So which okay. can be an emotion like anger or, you know, fear, right? That's a, an activation in the nervous system. And then the autonomic nervous system helps manage that charge, right? So we say the autonomic nervous system governs rest and digest. So the sympathetic charge is the arousal. And then the parasympathetic system helps to manage that arousal and help it to unwind and discharge and reorganize. But sometimes it can't do that. Sure. Sometimes the charge is too much, right? And it just pierces kind of like our bank of toleration, right? And what happens in that situation is the parasympathetic system has to come in to manage it so that we don't blow our minds, <laughs> so that we don't, you know, blow out our system, right? And so when that charge is so intense, when that fear, when that rage, you know, or that, that, you know, vulnerability or sadness, because we can also, you know, that charge can also drop, right? So we think of, you know, the activation that goes, you know, into a high arousal, but we also have the nervous system collapse, right? And so the autonomic nervous system is what helps manage that. So if the, if the, if the feeling is way too intense and the parasympathetic system comes in to manage it, right? Sometimes what happens is, is that it gets stuck there. So you've got all this arousal being contained and managed. And so there's kind of like that, you know, it creates what we call a freeze where there's a flatness in the system, right? So there's a lack of emotionality. There's a lack of affect, you know, there's a lack of ability for arousal. And so those people, like how I lived for most of my life, you know, I was in a state of dissociation and freeze for most of my life. And so I came off really cool, aloof, mm. right? Mm. I was mellow, right? I was, you know, I, you know, I was the, the, the easy go and nothing could ruffle me kind of guy because I, you know, I was dead behind the I was the, you know, I didn't have any life force because it was all suppressed. It was all held up. Yeah. So, so the way that I think about this sometimes, I'm going to lay this out and Brian, you can let me know if this is accurate or inaccurate. I think about the ways that our nervous system initially evolved to be, which is I see the bear. I have that sympathetic nervous system activation. I run away from the bear. 
if it's a good day, I get away from the bear. And then I come home, I come back to my tribe of people, my arousal slowly over time as I realize I'm safe, I'm with my people, it's okay, the bear's not going to get me, then I can kind of slowly calm down and then I have a good story to tell everybody else. And like I've gone through kind of that whole experience of kind of activation, my activation saved me and then now I'm calm, which is a little bit different of how we often have to go about it in our daily lives now, in our modern lives, where there's much more of that, you know, parasympathetic system needing to have to manage that activation. You know, it's I'm really stressed out about the fact that I have a presentation at work and my my sympathetic nervous system wants me to run away, right? I have the heartbeat and I have the sweats and I have the shakiness, but I can't run away because that's ridiculous. And so I need to clamp it down and manage it and tamp it down and that causes not just stress, but a little bit of this like kind of constant push pull, maybe even a little bit of a freeze to a certain extent. And while I wouldn't necessarily categorize having to give a presentation while you're nervous as like traumatic, but it seems like that's to me in my brain, that's a little bit of like an example of kind of how our nervous systems are kind of expected to manage in this day and age. Would you say that's that's that more or less track? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and if we kind of take that back to the idea of if your nervous system is able to go into its natural arousal to deal with the threat, whenever that threat is, and then when that threat passes or that threat is resolved and the nervous system is able to settle again, then that was just a stressful event. But if that complete, if that process is able to complete, then it creates like a short circuit in the nervous system, right? And so now we've got this kind of short circuit, this kind of place where the arousal was not able to be fully expressed and it's gotten stuck, right? And so now we have this wound, right? And that wound, that wounding experience, we also form all kinds of beliefs around, right? So if you go into that meeting and you're stressed out and your mind is racing and your heart is racing and you're sweating and you can't speak clearly, and you're stumbling on your words, and you can't collect your thoughts, and you really bomb that meeting, right? Then that there, there wasn't the ability for that resolution. And so you walk out of the room, and then the, you know, here's another little topic here, but then the shame comes in. Oh my God, what have I done? I've messed it all up. I lose my job failed, et cetera, et cetera. And then things really kind of spiral out of control again. And so that situation, we then form a lot of beliefs around. We form beliefs around ourselves, around the other people, around the situation, location, all that kind of thing. And then those beliefs can kind of run the show, right? And then start to seek out and find similar kinds of situations in our daily lives to reinforce itself. Right. And so that's Mm. where all of our patterns and habits and habituations can come from are from these wounding experiences that, you know, aren't resolved. And we form all the beliefs and the beliefs are like, you know, seeking out those same kinds of situations in an effort to be able to bring that, that, that original wound back online so that we can heal it. Mm. But oftentimes we don't do that. And so we just end up in this endless pattern of behavior throughout our lives. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I'm interested to move on to a topic that I think many of our patrons and our listeners and all of us really are collectively going through right now, which is 
this pandemic that we're all in and have been in for the better part of almost two years now, I, I, I see so many people sort of in real time having to deal with just in a huge amount of trauma, I think, from the pandemic and it, this idea of not really ever knowing like what's going to happen next, where are we being jostled back and forth in terms of, you know, things opening up and shutting back down. I think of Dedeker, who's been in a, the longest, yeah, the longest shutdown in Melbourne, I think in the world. In the world yes. Yeah. Longest in the longest world. Exactly. In the world. Yep. I saw that recently and I was like, wow, Dedeker's literally living through that right now. Yep. And just, yeah, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on just this sort of collective trauma that we're all going through and sort of how, how is it that we can move in a direction of going past this or healing ourselves from this collective trauma? Sure. Well, you know, I think, you know, to, to kind of put a little bit more foundation on that, on Please. the heels of where the conversation just went. Yeah. Okay. If we want to just kind of look at the basics of how the human animal responds to threat, right? That's really what we're ultimately looking at in trauma, right? And so when there's a threat of any kind, and it doesn't matter if it's the loss of a job or if it's a tiger chase, right? The body reacts and responds to threat in very simplistic ways right? Your lower brain, your primal brain, your reptilian brain, you know, is there to protect you. And it's without thought or reason or perspective. It's just pure animal behavior. It's survival strategy. And so when facing threat of any kind, the first thing that we do, the best thing that we can do facing threat of any kind is to freeze. First, become still and quiet and hide and get as small as possible because that conserves energy and increases the likelihood of survival because the threat may just pass on its own, right? The next best response, if the threat continues, is to flee, run, try to save your life, right? And that is the least energy expenditure and, the, and lessens the risk, right? Because you might actually be able to get away. The next response, if you can't get away, is you've got to turn around and fight, right? And so there's a different kind of mobilization there in the system of now I have to fight, right? And that is the highest risk and the greatest expenditure of energy. We have two other ways in which we handle threat. And one is to fawn, right? So this is kind of like Stockholm Syndrome where the captor starts to befriend the the person who has imprisoned them or who is torturing them, right? That the, that the so captive have, starts to develop sort of affection for their captor, right? Exactly. And because you're trying to minimize the pain, right? If I can win them over, if I can, you know, if I if 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 they find me to be, you know, friendly or affectionate, then maybe they won't inflict as much pain on or maybe they'll let me go, right? So there's that fawn, and then there's also faith, and that's when we pretend to die. That's like the, the possum or the impala that pretends, that feigns to die, because the predator needs the prey energy, 
Okay. Mm. So I just wanted to kind of like put that as a foundation and really kind of understanding the biology, physiology of the survival of the human animal, right? Facing threat of any kind. So now we've got this pandemic, right? And this is the first time in the history of mankind where we have been dealing with an inescapable attack from an invisible assailant where there's no safe place to hide. And it's species wide. Mm-hmm. And even though we may have had the pandemic of 1918, right? We didn't have the access and knowledge of it the way that we do now, right? So we also have to understand there's this thing in threat and trauma called horror, right? Witnessing terrible things happening to other people. Our lower brain doesn't have the ability to determine the difference between perception and reality. And so when we witness something happening horrible to someone else, our lower brain is interpreting it as if it's happening to us. So it's like when we're watching a movie, the reason we laugh and scream and cry is because our lower brain doesn't know we're not in the movie. We're not in that situation, right? And so we're in the pandemic. We're in this, you know, terror where even the people closest to us, our family, our friends, our lovers, are potential threats now. Because if they have to go out, you know, like remember the first days of the pandemic when everybody was like bunkered down and like, oh my God, I can't leave the house. And, you know, and then you would leave the house and you were told to come in and take off all your clothes and jump in the shower and sanitize everything. And people were wiping down all of the food that they were bringing home from Trader Joe's, you know? I mean, it was like, there was nothing safe. There was no one safe. Right. And if someone breached the safety of your home, if one of your family members or your partner had to go out, they, they were coming back potentially with the ability to kill you. Right. So this is a level of threat that we have never experienced as human beings. There was no safe place to hide and no one could be our sense of safety. Yeah. And then we're either having to deal with this in intrusion or in solitude. So suddenly, these relational dynamics that used to have some breathing room no longer had breathing room. Parents were discovering, wait a second, I have to care for this child (laughs) 24-7? Yeah. (laughs) I have to to feed her three meals a day? I have to entertain her? I have to educate her? I have to, you know, Mm. right? And so there was this sense of intrusion. Couples didn't have the buffer of being able to go away to work, right? And then come back eight or 10 hours later. It was 24-7 threat and overwhelm and all the relational dynamics. And I mean intrapersonal relational dynamics, meaning your own sense of relationship to yourself and the interpersonal relationships of how you engage with other people. So everybody's stuff was coming up. All of your individual stuff was rising to the surface. All your relational dynamic stuff was coming to the surface. And then there was this other segment of the population, like me, who was living alone. And what is the worst punishment that we subject human beings to? Solitude. Yeah, Yeah, solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. Yeah. Right. So if you mess up in tribe, 
we take you out of tribe and we put you in jail into a different tribe. And if you mess up in that tribe, we take you out of that tribe and we put you in solitary confinement, right? And so this has been one of the most dysregulating experiences that the human species has ever been through, right? And then there's this other level of shame, the loss of power, the loss of agency, the loss of freedom, the loss of ability to self-soothe and self-regulate by means in which you're used to doing, right? There were so many things that were restricted that we just no longer had access to to self-soothe and self-regulate. It's it's so interesting hearing you talk about that idea of, of threat, that essentially everyone has become a potential threat. You know, even if we live with them, if they ever leave the house, they come back as this potential threat. And it's, it's interesting hearing you say that because that never had quite occurred to me like that, but I still feel that way about everybody. Like yeah, I, I walk I, around people on my walk yeah. as opposed to towards them or near them. Like I feel like everybody yeah. does that now. People yeah, there's are this a threat. Sense, and, right. You know. Everyone's potentially a threat. And even my friends, even people who I want to spend time with, there's still this part of me that's like, this person could be a threat to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just having to kind of cope with that. Kind of like you were saying before about, or, or like Dedeker's example of having all of this sort of activation stress response about doing a presentation, but being like, but I'm not going to run away from this because I I need to do my job. I need to do this presentation. And same thing with like, well, I want to see my friends and my family and people I care about because I know that I'll feel better seeing them. And I've, it's, it sucked not seeing them, but at the same time feeling like I'm having to just kind of tamp down this little bit of a level of, of, fear or panic or, or something right. that is kind of that, like, oh, I want to run away. Right. So that's, and I'm just sort of reeling from, from that kind of revelation, I guess, that that's what's going on there. And it goes against how we're hardwired as human beings, right? We are hardwired for human engagement, right? When, you know, from our first breath, there is an instinctual drive to remain in favor to belong, right? Because if we fall out of favor, we die. Human animals are the only animal that spends 25% of its life 100% dependent upon others. Mm. We have to engage socially, especially initially. So, you know, we are hardwired to have our needs and desires met from other people. And if we aren't able to engage them, then we can be rejected, neglected, abandoned, shunned, or cast out, and we die. We don't have the ability to fend for ourselves. And this is an underlying, unconscious human drive. And this is where shame comes into the picture too, because shame is used to socialize children, to create, maintain, and protect tribe to establish power and maintain hierarchy. And if we, and again, shame is about the potential of the loss of the interpersonal bridge, right? If there's something wrong with me, I fall out of favor, I'm rejected. Yeah, I, I wanted to point that out. B, 
because it's like the, the flip side of it was also knowing that your friends and family also see you as a threat as well. That there was, it was just like the whole pandemic got you coming and going, right? You know, that if you're the one going out and taking the risk and then having to deal with that shame of people not wanting to be around you or being like, oh, actually, I don't think you can come over or, oh, actually, I think you should go just live in the upper half of the house for two weeks and before we see each other, you know, also that shame of of being the threat as well while also being in the midst of all your friends and family being the threat to you. I, I do want to, I'm going to be a heckler here. And be a little contrarian and say, okay, sure, Brian. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Pandemic sucked. But once it goes back to normal and we can go back to connecting with other people, all this trauma will be fixed, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, because, you know, this is, this is a, this is a unique phenomenon. So there, there is no user manual here, right? And reentry is a whole different beast, right? Reentry is having to really kind of take a look at how am I spending my time and who am I going to spend it with, right? We've been in isolation for so long. We've had to take a look at our own stuff so deeply, right? And in that process, many people have fallen out the radar, excuse me, have fallen off the radar. Many relationships have ended. Right. And so there's a greater sense of lack of, lack of connectivity that's innate, period. End of statement. Right. There, you know, it's like, who do I connect with? Who matters? What matters? What do I want? What do I not want? Who do I want to engage with? Who do I not want to engage with? What matters? What doesn't matter? I mean, this is an existential, you know, crisis of how do I re-engage in the world? How do I socialize? And socialization pre-pandemic was really difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, in and of itself, social anxiety, that sense of do I fit in? Do I belong? Is there something wrong with me? You know, am I like everyone else? Am I, am I, am I different? You know, and that's what shame is all about is anywhere there is a sense of difference, there's shame. Mm. And that doesn't mean just one down. That can be one up. Mm. Right. I was in the middle of the pandemic and I had friends who were leaving corporate jobs or losing corporate jobs and they were driving Uber. Mm. And I was in the middle of the pandemic and I was seeing 48 clients mm-hmm. a week. Yeah. Now, in my Your field, job really went up. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, same for me. <laughs> but, I think you know, most people yeah. in this field, right? Like yeah. people dealing with mental health or trauma, or any kind of those helping professions, it was the same across the board with all of my colleagues and, and friends. Just everyone was just like, couldn't, you know, just right. like booked to the ceiling, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's I mean, still... A normal practice is 15 clients a week. Yeah. Okay. I was seeing 48. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when did you sleep? <laughs> well, what else did I have to do? That's true. I suppose <laughs> right. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Clients and then sleep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was living alone. <laughs> it was like, you know what? I'm going to watch Netflix, or I can help people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. but I, but but what you were saying though is that 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 shame can show up in either case of like yeah, I feel shame I, because I, I'm I'm working a ton and my friends can't work, yeah. and vice versa. It's like I'm exactly. not able to work and other people. Can, can I tell yeah. my friends? Oh my god! You know, look at what how much money I made this week. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, mean, I couldn't I couldn't do that yeah. because they were struggling. You know, and so there was that shame that I felt like I needed to hide 
how the pandemic wasn't affecting me adversely. I'd been working on video for 15 years already. I didn't have to switch over to telehealth. I was one of the first people doing telehealth. Hmm. (laughs) You know, I didn't, I, you know, it, it, it didn't affect me adversely except the solitude. Right. But I had always been, you know, I'd been kind of social distancing for years as it was. You know, I enjoyed my solitude. You know, I lived in Los Angeles and, you know, they say nobody walks in LA, but I only put 7,000 miles on my car in three years. Wow. Right. So I'm a homebody. Right. right. So, you know, even that wasn't that big of a, a difference for me. And so there was so much difference between me and my friends. But the difference for me was, this wasn't adversely affecting me. Right. You know, that the shame can come up in that situation. Yeah. 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 Except, it, it, you know, I will say that the first three and a half weeks, I went into total solitude, total, you know, lockdown because one of my best friends is 84 years old at the time and she's on mm-hmm. oxygen and OCPD and all of that. And I thought, you know what? If anything goes down, I need to be able to make sure that I'm not going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I need to go help her, I don't want to kill her. Yeah. Right. And after three and a half weeks of complete 100% isolation, I called her up and I was like, hey, it's been three and a half weeks. I'm definitely in the free and clear. I can come over and, you know, and I can see you. And she said, you can't come over here. I don't want you here. Mm-hmm. You can catch it on the way here. Yeah. Right? Mom. And then I remember like a couple of weeks later, one of my closest best friends, right, who had also been in lockdown isolation, came over and we, you know, we felt like we were being horrible and bad people because we we're actually going to like, you know, meet. And I opened up the door and he hugged me and my knees went out from underneath me mm. because I had not been touched yeah. in yeah. five and a half, six weeks. Yeah. 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 Well, we have some specific questions from patrons and sort of topics relating to all of the stuff that we just sort of prefaced on the pandemic (laughs) and all of that. We're going to continue on with that. But first, we're going to take a short break to talk about some of the ways that you can support our show and help bring it for free to all y'all out there. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store. 
and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. So Brian, you gave us a lot of things to think about before the break. I I just wanted to discuss some of the things that our patrons uh, had prompted us for when we were talking about the fact that we were going to do this episode with you and talk about trauma and shame and many things related to the pandemic. So you talked about this a bit, but I wanted to touch again on social anxiety and just how, as we're sort of easing potentially out of this pandemic, I do remember like a brief window in June and July where it really did feel like we were sort of going out of this pandemic a bit and then we were sucked back in with the Delta variant. But there is sort of general social anxiety that's been exacerbated by this lack of seeing people for a year and a half, two years. And a lot of our listeners are having sort of a reluctance to get back out there and go on dates or see friends again or rebuild their social circles. Can you talk about that and sort of maybe some of the shame surrounding that? And then also, if you have any tips on how people can start getting back out there? Sure. Well, you know, we have to, you know, first of all, I want to just kind of say that that we have to look at shame, uh, you know, in, in a broader, with a broader lens. First of all, we don't want to be without shame. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. If we didn't have shame, we'd all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law. Okay. Shame helps us figure out what's right and wrong and good and bad and what we like and don't like and what we want and don't want and what works for us and what doesn't work for us. Right. It also helps us come together in tribes, right? Because the human experience is all about the tribal experience and shame is all about tribe. And so if we have healthy shame, then we're able to move about from tribe to tribe in the recognition of there are parts of me that this tribe resonates with, would engage with, that makes me be, be you know, make, that it enables me to be a part of the tribe, right? Because tribes are formed around social structure, around certain kinds of ideas, around certain kinds of, you know, values or beliefs or behaviors, right? And we're even looking at this kind of tribal, you know, experience of the relational field and your audience of people who are looking at, you know, at at intimate relationships in a different way than society as a whole embraces right? So there's some, there can be some inherent shame in that alone, right? 
I am not wired or behaving in these traditional relational structures, mm-hmm. right? But here's this tribe, right? You guys have your patrons, you have your, your listeners, you have your followers, you have other people like you, right? Where you can feel safe and you can, you can express yourself freely in that tribe. But then if you go to another tribe, like your, I don't know, let's say your, your, your family, right? You may not want to bring forward these parts of you in conversation with your grandparents. Yeah. I think we've, right? we've all had a lot of familiarity with this. <laughs> we've all been there. What, right? to, what to leave out in certain situations. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so healthy shame helps us figure out what parts of us we bring forward in one tribe and what parts we hold back. And then when we go to another tribe, we bring forward the parts that we held back in that other tribe. And, and maybe we hold back the parts that we brought forward in the other tribe, right? So that's what healthy shame avails us is the opportunity to kind of move from tribe to tribe. It's not being inauthentic. It's being fully authentic, right? Mm-hmm. Because shame is the loss of authenticity. Shame comes from, comes in the guise of the, you know, with the messages we get when we're children. That part of you, I don't ever want to see you again. That part of you doesn't belong. That part of you is wrong. That part of you is bad. That part I never want, I, I, you know, I, you know how, how dare you talk to me like that, right? And so we're getting all these messages that there are parts of us, ways that we think, ways that we behave, that are unacceptable. And so we begin to dismember these parts of us. We hide them, we suppress them, we try to kill them off. And so in healing shame, we have to expand the container large enough to remember our dismembered parts so that we can be all of who we are. Mm. We can be fully authentic. We can hold all of that which might even be in the juxtaposition of opposites. Mm. And then in healthy shame, to be able to recognize it's okay for me to be all of who I am. And there are certain groups where I can express certain parts of me and what we're ultimately looking for is our family where we can be fully who we are, right? It doesn't mean that everyone in our family is going to embrace every single part of us and think every single part of us is just amazing, but they love us nonetheless. They accept us nonetheless, right? And that's that whole idea of unconditional love is that it's predicated on the idea that there are conditions that we love someone in spite of, right? So, you know, sorry, going off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but, you know, if we're looking at this idea of reentry, we have to take a look at all of that. We have to really kind of drop in and recognize, wait a second, you know, how can I hold all of who I am? Because during COVID, you got really clear with some hmm. parts of you that you had been suppressing, refusing, denying, right? Everybody's stuff rose to the surface during COVID, right? It's been a very introspective time Mm. for most people. Yeah. Right. And so now we get to take all of that and we're looking at, okay, so I crossed the threshold of the front door. What am I going to do? How is this going to play out? Where are my tribes? Right? Because tribes have been dismantled. I'm wondering, in addition to things like feeling this social anxiety or like this hesitancy toward re-entry or confusion about re-entry, are there 
other sort of trauma symptoms that you've seen in the people that you work with that feel like they're very pandemic related, like their other behaviors or other feelings. The reason why I'm asking is, you know, I, I want our listeners to have a sense of being able to recognize if there's something confusing that's coming up, you know, because I do think there is still a little bit of this collective assumption, okay, if we can just get back to normal, then everything's going to feel fine again. And I'm going to go back to how I felt before again. And it's all going to function the way it did before. And so I guess I'm kind of wondering if you can share what are some other specifically pandemic-related trauma symptoms that you've noticed that people may be feeling, maybe for the sake of normalizing that for folks? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there, there's an inherent, I don't know, my personal opinion, there's an inherent problem there, and that's normalization. Mm. How can we normalize <laughs> what's, what's happened, mm. mm-hmm. right? And how can we expect to go back to what we once thought was normal? Yeah. You know, and quite frankly, personally, you know, for most of my life, I haven't aspired towards normalcy. <laughs> I imagine a lot of our audience can relate to <laughs> yeah, that. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. I've always said normal is the setting of the washing machine. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't aspire to, towards normal, but what this does give us is the opportunity to really take a look at how do we embrace all of who we are? Hmm. How can hmm. we, how can we expand the container of who we are to be able to remember all of who we are, to be more cohesive, to be more fully aware and fully presentational, right? Because we are moving out of this isolation. And so that means that we can move into clear and specific tribes. So, you know, what I would say in the midst of all of this and coming out of pandemic and isolation and the, you know, the re-entry of it all is get really clear and specific about the tribes that you want to be a part of. And if you have to form them, form them, right? Figure out the ways to connect to those people who have this, you know, who, you know, the same energetic resonant feel, birds of a feather flock together, right? How do you find those communities? How do you form those communities? Something that is related to this, I think, that has come up in some of our discussion groups, uh, I know has come up, you know, a lot of us have shared this experience talking with people where someone might come in saying, I'm having this struggle with my partner or my partners and it just feels like they're they're extra needy and i just like can't provide everything they need or they're just like being really they just seem different or they're being unpredictable or kind of variations on something like that and the thing that i brought up in one of these discussion groups recently was what we're talking about today which is that we all i think so many of us don't acknowledge how significant the trauma is in ourselves or in our loved ones. And so I I think that there is, in a way, just like recognizing that there's something kind of, I don't want to say freeing, but there's something that kind of helps give some perspective to those challenges to be like, it's not just that something's changed with you or them or your relationship. I mean, it has, but it's kind of because the whole world has changed and there's been this trauma that everyone's experienced and we're all kind of coping with it differently or it's presenting somewhat differently. Mm. And so I guess to bring that to a question, something that 
came up in in a few of the questions that we got from our listeners was kind of how do you deal with when there it feels like there's a mismatch there when it's like my partner wants to try to cope with this by like going super social and going out and doing all the things and i'm still dealing with i'm scared of everyone and i don't want anyone around me i don't want anyone to touch me or breathe on me or anything like that and i'm just curious if if you found in your practice some things that have been effective for people in coping with those sorts of seeming incompatibilities well i kind of hate to to say it but this is a time of redefining Hmm. and that you know is is a reality that we have to all hold on to and it may mean that relationships change right and that's just the natural fallout from this experience Right. And ultimately what you're really kind of talking about, if I were to really drill down into it is boundaries. Right. Mm. And the boundaries that we bring in to our relationships. And that's a cornerstone piece of all relationships. And I can imagine it's an even more important dynamic when you're exploring relationships with multiple people while still maintaining certain types of relational connection with other people, you know, and it's all about boundaries. And that's really the ultimate question, right? Do you have fuzzy boundaries? Do you have no boundaries? Do you have healthy boundaries? Are you overboundaried? Mm-hmm. Right? And how does all of that play out in the relational field? The relationship with yourself first and foremost, and then in the relational field with your partners. And when boundaries are not acknowledged or disrespected or breached, it builds resentment. And when it continues over and over and over, resentment builds upon resentment, which builds into rage and contempt, right? And so to be able to put the attention and focus on how do we create healthy boundaries here? And how do we protect those boundaries is paramount. And that really needs to be the conversation, right? We get lost in the details and circumstances and we have a tendency to focus on that, well, you said and you did and what about the time when and all of that. But what we really need to do is recognize the details and circumstances are just circumstantial. What's really going on underneath it all? I think you were talking earlier about so many people experiencing the pandemic through this lens of intrusion, particularly in relationships of, oh my God, suddenly I'm in extreme proximity with someone that I used to have some space with. And sometimes Mm. that was by choice. Sometimes that wasn't by choice. Sometimes it was purely overused to the buffer of going to work. Sometimes it was, I mean, I remember, yeah, in that first month of the pandemic where people were like, I guess we'll move in together you know, because God knows how long we're going to have to shack up. And so I don't want to go through not seeing you. So let's get married or let's move in. Or even though we've only been dating for two months or things like that, you know, that there was just so much of that. And it does feel like now there's, I also don't like, I don't want to use the word reckoning, but it is like a little bit of a reckoning, you know, of now having to figure out, you know, okay, but where do I actually stand now? Where do those boundaries lie? How do I differentiate right. between myself and you now that I'm kind of going back into the world and reconnecting? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the pandemic ultimately has been one of the most influential forces 
in our own introspection. It has forced us to take a look at ourselves and the world in a way in which we've never been compelled to before. And when we stop and we really take a good hard look at ourselves, at our own world, our own life, right? I got to put my head, you know, when I put my head down on the pillow at night, I've got myself to reckon with, Mm. right? And so if we look at boundaries, we have to recognize that the energy that we use to set boundaries and protect them is called healthy aggression. Mm. It's the energy of self-preservation and self-care. So if we have healthy aggression, we have the ability to self-preservate and to care for ourselves, right? Then we have the ability to set boundaries. This is what matters to me. This is what doesn't matter to me. These are my values. These are not my values. This is my North Star. That's not my North Star, right? And so if we're able to do all of that, then what are we able to do with that healthy aggression? It shows up as drive, dedication, discipline, chutzpah, get up and go, vim and vigor, vitality, vibrancy, inner strength, um, empowerment, embodiment, self-confidence, and self-esteem. And if we can be in that place of self-confidence and self-esteem, that means that we have a really clear idea of who we are, what matters to us, what doesn't matter to us, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. And it doesn't matter what other people think. That's what self-confidence and self-esteem is. I'm so comfortable in my own skin, whatever it is you think about me doesn't really have that much of an impact on me because I'm good on my own in my own skin. Right. And so, you know, we have to take a look at when we're looking at boundaries, the, the layer underneath that is your relationship to anger. And that's another big piece in the relational dynamic of any two people, right? Is what is your relationship to anger? Brian, honestly, like this could be a whole other episode on relationships <laughs> uh, to anger. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, was a, that was definitely a foundational piece of the work that I did with Brian was like reconnecting mm-hmm. to anger and aggression and things like that. And yeah, I, I think not a lot of people realize that anger often is, I think if we look at it very positively, a really wonderful cue that's pointing out a place Absolutely. where maybe you need to have some boundaries or should have had some boundaries or you had some boundaries, but then they were steamrolled or pushed against in a particular mm. way. And I think that so many of us are so socialized out of feeling that that kind of anger is okay, you know? For sure. And I will say even the first time that Brian, you use that phrase with me, healthy aggression, it was very, very confronting for me because I think especially yeah. even that yeah. term aggression really, really makes us nervous right? Because no one wants to think that they're encouraging you to be aggressive to somebody. But it is that sense of there has to be something within you that's able to hold that boundary and push back without just being flattened. And and that's why I call it self-care, self-preservation, right? Because if we look at anger as on the spectrum, right? Because we live in a polarized universe, everything has a polarity. So if we're looking at anger, we oftentimes think of anger in the context of harm of other, harm of self, right? Homicidal rage, suicidal ideation. That's the extreme expression of anger. But if that's the extreme expression of anger, then the opposite is self-care, self-preservation, care Mm -hmm. of others, protection of others. 
And so if we can hold that positive polarity, that vital energy of self-care, self-preservation, care of others, protection of others, and we bring that into the context of our relationship with ourselves and then consequently the relationship that we have with other people, then we're able to set really healthy boundaries out of care and love and kindness and support, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Where oftentimes those things aren't even talked about, those boundaries aren't even talked about, and that's where things get really kind of wishy-washy in the relational field, and that's where the power struggles begin. And and yes, and then on the opposite side of that, you talked about being over-boundaried or hyper-boundaried, which we've talked about mm-hmm. a little bit on this show, is that I do think what I've seen happen with some people coming out of the pandemic is, again, like maybe too much of an aggressive protecting of one's boundaries, you know, where it really is Mm -hmm. like an active pushing away, you know, which I think also makes sense considering the nature of the pandemic, right? Where it was all about literally everyone and everything is a threat. And so, of course, you would want to to push away as well, which also... My best friend of 20-some years told me, you can't come over here. Yeah. Mm, You could kill me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? After I took three and a half weeks preparing myself to make sure that I wouldn't kill her. (laughs) Right. She still said, you can't come over here because you could kill me. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, this is, this is, you know, this is, this is a conversation that needs to be had that nobody knows needs to be had. It sounds like you've said sort of through all this that this idea that I think many of us are trying to get back to like how things were is simply not attainable and attainable or realistic goal because we're constantly moving evolving species and we've moved in this direction of we've had this huge experience together as i guess a species and now our relationships and the way that we interact with one another are always going to be you know flavored by that experience that we have had and so the idea that, yeah, it's ever going to get back to where it was is probably not really going to happen, I guess. Can I ask you a question? Please. Do you really want it to go back to where it was for you? <laughs> I, I think, it, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of internal debate about that because there was this like, you know, beautiful, I guess, naivete in in being able to relate to people and live life without that thing in the back of your head of, is this person going to be a threat to my health in some way? Uh, you know, and I think about that. I mean, I, I work with a bunch of people who are not vaccinated, for instance, mm-hmm. at a restaurant, and I can't do anything about it. I can't, right. you know, I the the thing that I could do is is quit my job, which at this point I, I'm not willing to do. So I think it is that question exactly of what you've just been speaking about. Where are your internal boundaries? Well, and that, that, that spills over into STIs. Sure. I mean, to a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, how do we know that, you know, how, you know, whether or not the person that we are being intimate with is aware of their own SDI, you know, do, do they even know that they have an SCI? All of the boundaries around that, you know, condoms and no condoms and this and that and whatever. And, you know, so, I mean, you know, again, this is, this is giving us an opportunity. And that's what we really have to focus on is the pandemic is an opportunity. It's giving us the agency to really take a look at what matters to us, 
and how we're going to enter into the world and engage again, right? We have the opportunity to elevate our experience now because so many of us were just bouncing around unconsciously, kind of hoping for the best. Hmm. But now we actually have the, we actually have this, this framework that is insisting that we have greater respect for ourselves and other people. Let it elevate the experience, right? Yeah. I'm finding life all that much more sweet now. Hmm. That's a really right? good point. Yeah. Right? When I yeah. get to, you know, the other, you know, a couple of weeks ago, here I am in Mexico, right? Anna. I had, a, I had an odd thing happen one day. I had a gap between clients. And so we went and climbed some pyramids and swam in some cenotes. Goodness. <laughs> right? <laughs> How lovely. So I had a break in the middle of my day. And so I went and I climbed a pyramid and I went and swam in an underground cavern in pristine, pure water. And that was such an exquisite experience. And at another time in my life, if I had had that break in the day, I may have turned on Netflix. I may have, you know, sat in my backyard and, you know, you know, done illicit things. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? But now this has given me a different point of reference, Mm. right? My relationships have more meaning now. Mm. I'm giving them more attention. I'm giving them more precedence. I'm giving them more power because they matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it was like, you know, you're trying to collect friends like you were trying to collect baseball cards. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or collect lovers like sexual conquests. Mm-hmm. You know, like how many can I have in a day or how many did I have this month? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been there, but now, you know, it's how do I, how do I elevate this experience? How do I really find the meaning and the passion and the connection and the attunement in my relationships? I'm going to take it home here. Um, I'm sure we could talk about this for, for many, many, many more hours. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of so many of these topics. And so, you know, I want to reflect back the actionable things for our listeners that maybe we can glean from this, you know. So, Brian, you've talked a lot about, it seems like there's kind of this overarching theme of, of integration, really, is what it sounds like you're, mm-hmm. you're talking to me about, of, of, yeah, this horrible traumatic experience that led to such a shakeup in relationships, such a shakeup in our sense of self, such a shakeup in figuring out what it is that we actually do need or not need to thrive. So so it sounds like it's a combination of, you know, individually finding meaning in that, finding a way to integrate that experience mm-hmm. as we kind of go back into the world, having self-care, having boundaries, being clear on our boundaries, and as well as being very specific and mindful about who you do choose to reconnect you, which communities you do choose to re-enter into. Is there anything other you know, other than that stuff that I, that I said, you know, other actionable takeaways that you think that our listeners would benefit from? Sure. So I will share with your listeners a couple of MP3 files of 
a guided meditation that I created several years ago mm, called the fives. Oh okay. And I don't denigrate it. I don't know oh, whether yeah. or not that oh, actually yeah. came up in there. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the fives, the fives is a meditation that I, that I kind of, you know, branded several years ago. And the idea is you take a post-it note, five post-it notes and you write the number five on each one. And you hang it in five locations that you frequent on a daily basis, the kitchen, bedroom, bathroom, laptop, car, or whatever that might be, right? And it's a visual reminder that at least once a day to take five minutes to orient through all five senses. Because what the pandemic has done is, is put us into a place of disconnection and dissociation and oftentimes put us into a realm, into an environment that we didn't want to be. And so there was a lot of dissociation, disconnection, distraction, trying to get out of, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to be in this place, right? And so what we need to do is we actually need to reconnect. We need to attune to, we need to associate with, right? And orienting to your environment through all five senses, meaning take one minute to really look around at the space that you're in the colors, the shapes, the textures, the objects, especially the things that give you a sense of well-being, safety, calm, peace, pleasant memories, right? Then listen to the sounds. Every sound that you can hear, really listen hard, right? Can you hear the sounds outside? Can you hear the cars going by? Can you hear the wind in the trees? Can you hear the hum of the refrigerator? Can you hear the sound of your dog snoring? right? Listen to the sounds. Then smell the smells. Really bring all of your attention and awareness into what you can smell, right? And the sense of smell is the most accurate and sensitive of all five senses. We can distinguish mm -hmm. 10,000 different scents and each one can have multiple associations. So pick things up and smell it. Smell your t-shirt, smell your hair, smell your armpit, smell your breath, lick the back of your hand, smell your breath. It doesn't matter. Smell, connect to the environment, smell the sofa cushion. Okay. <laughs> smell, connect, right? Then taste. Notice the tip of the tongue, the back of the tongue, the left, the right, the top, the bottom, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, chemical, metallic. Bring all of your attention and focus into the nuance of what you can taste. Roll your tongue around in your mouth and see what happens, right? And then feel, and I mean externally, your skin, right? Can you feel the headphones on your ears, the band across the top of your head, the weight of your clothing, the presence of your watch, the hair on your neck, your skin where it's exposed, your skin where it's covered, where your waistband is probably a little bit tighter than it used to be before COVID. Right. The, you know, your feet on the ground, your butt in the chair, your back supported. Feel that, right? Because what you're doing is a number of things. One, you're giving the higher brain a different set of problems to solve. Hmm. Because in the pandemic, we've been spending the last year and a half looking at all the problems, anticipating what problems are going to be coming, catastrophizing the future putting together five, six, seven contingency plans for everything that can go wrong. We've been lamenting the past. We've been hyper-focused on what our current problems are that need to get solved, right? And so this is one way to give your brain a break. It's a higher brain hack. 
give it a different set of problems to solve. What can I see? What can I hear? What can I smell? What can I taste? What can I feel? Because what that's doing is it's feeding the lower brain all the information it needs to know where you are in time and space. So what's that doing? It's bringing you into the present moment. There's no other way to be present. There's no other way to be quote unquote in the moment than to be fully oriented through all five senses. That's the biology and physiology of being present in the moment. People have been talking about it for decades. Nobody's talked about how to do it, right? And so if you're fully oriented through all five senses, you're present, you're in the moment. What is that going to do? That's going to give you a sense of connection, of safety, of wholeness, of wellness, perhaps excitement, of pleasure, right? And so This is really important to be able to start to rewire the circuitry of the brain because we've been in hypervigilance. We've been in in terror. We've been in horror. We've been in, you know, this, this, this state of threat 24 seven for a year and a half. So if we can carve out five minutes a day, five times a day, then we can start rewiring the brain. We can start working with neuroplasticity to create new neural pathways to where we can get out of the threat response and get into the present moment, get into our bodies, get into feeling safe and connected. That sounds really lovely. And then when you're with your partner, look at them, listen to them, smell them, (laughs) taste them, feel them. Be present with them. There's no other way to be present with them. Get out of your head. Get into your body. Notice what happens in your body when you truly see them, when you truly hear them, when you smell them, when you taste them, feel them. What happens in your body? Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that just brought up so many That's feelings so for cool. me because I, yeah, yeah, I just think our. I know my own personal experience with the pandemic, even after being a meditator for several years and really preaching the gospel of being present, you know, there are parts of this that was just like so aversive and so abhorrent that it's the being present is the opposite of what you want. Well, yeah, because our bodies generally is a shop of war. Exactly. And so it is just like, no, like, no, no, I don't want to. I even, I used to journal pretty religiously before the pandemic and during the pandemic I stopped and I just I wrote one journal entry that was like yeah I'm not journaling because it sucks I don't want to remember this <laughs> <laughs> See, but that's, that, that should have been in your burn journal right? that's, mm-hmm. another, that's another tool of mine is, is, uh, uh, is what I call a burn journal it's a way of you know having a safe place to express your anger excellent and, yeah yeah. So, but you know, that would be a perfect entry into the burn journal. I, I can hate this burn journal. I don't want to write a burn journal. I'm so angry. I have to write this burn journal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, there was certainly much of that. There's a lot, there's a lot more burn journaling, I would say, than, than regular journaling over the course of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it was righteous. It was righteous anger. We mm-hmm. lost our, we lost our freedom. We lost our sense of self. We lost our way, you know, our ability to move around the world. We lost our ability to express ourselves the way that we wanted to. Yeah. Some of us lost people. You know? yeah. 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 Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on this episode and to share all this with everyone. Can you tell our listeners where can they find more about you if they're interested in either working with you or they just want some of the resources you've talked about? Where's a good place for them to find that and, and what can they look for? 
Well, I'm highly Googleable. Mm-hmm. Great. So if, you know, if you Google Brian May and you will, you'll find me everywhere. Um, I've got a YouTube channel. You know, I've got probably 30 videos there now. I've got a hundred in queue. So those wow. will start dripping out soon. I have a book that I'm completely revamping right now and minimizing, right? Mm-hmm. Because I wrote this massive book about what is trauma? What is shame? And how do you work with it? And what's somatic experiencing? And it was just like, Oh my God, it's way too much. So I'm probably breaking it down into three or four books. So one of those books, which is basically going to be kind of like Healing Shame and Trauma 101, hopefully will be available on Kindle by February. And then I'm also working on putting together a six-week course right now. It's kind of a little twofold. One is for people who are in the therapeutic practice, it's the tools and skills and resources that will help facilitate that healing journey. But even more importantly, it's for people to get the basics, the foundation in place before you even call a therapist. Mm. And then when you do find the right therapist, you'll be able to hit the floor running on day one Mm. because you'll already have the knowledge and foundation and skills and tools in place. So, you know, so that's, that's all in place as well. But yeah, you know, Instagram. You know, you can follow me. It'll start happening soon, but mm-hmm. I am so bad on social media. <laughs> but all of it, you know, all of all of my all of my social media is at Brian D. Mahan S E P. Yeah. And then my website is Brian D. Mahan.com. So that's everything. Or Yelp, which is how Excellent. I found you first. Oh, first. Cool. <laughs> right. Brian, this has been amazing. I have had so many different epiphanies, I think all of us have throughout this episode and just a lot to think about and I I really hope that our listeners are excited by this and that it resonates with them. I'm sure that it will. Uh, So for our bonus episode for patrons, we're going to be continuing our chat with Brian, talking about a couple more things. And so if you want to check that out and become a patron, please do so at patreon.com slash multiamory. And our question on Instagram this week is, how have y'all been coping with trauma caused by the pandemic? We're interested to hear about that. I might slip in a little something in there as well. (laughs) Answer my own question on Instagram this week. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 